The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. August 5th, 2014, in Beaver Creek, Ohio, a small suburb outside of Dayton. John Crawford III, a 22-year-old black man, is walking through Walmart while talking on the phone to the mother of his two children. As he walks through the store, he sees an unarmed airsoft rifle and casually picks it up off the shelf. He continues moving through aisle after aisle, talking on the phone, and even passing several customers, none of which seem bothered by him until one person calls the police, claiming that he's pointing the weapon at people. Moments later, police rush into the store, and within seconds of encountering John, they shoot him on the spot, and he falls to the ground. He would later die from his wounds. A second customer, Angela Williams, also died after having a heart attack while trying to leave the store. Two lives lost, no crimes committed, zero indictments for the officers who pulled the trigger. This is American justice. Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Rakia Boyd, Alton Sterling, George Floyd, Drayshawn Reed, there are thousands of names I could read to you. The truth is that every year American police kill over 1,000 people, many of whom are unarmed. As Anabaptist Christians, we claim to center Jesus' work and actions in our faith. And if Jesus came to set the oppressed free, how can we go about our lives while ignoring the truth that our brothers and sisters are not only oppressed, but often murdered without justice? This is episode two of the What Would It Take podcast. Today we're exploring police abolition as we wrestle with the question, what would it take for everyone to be free? Listen in. As we begin to explore this topic, I think it's important that we define our terms. So what do I mean when I talk about police abolition? The police abolition movement is a political movement that advocates replacing policing with other systems of public safety. Police abolitionists believe that policing as a system is inherently flawed and cannot be reformed. Police abolition isn't police reform. It isn't leaving victims prone to violence or abuse, though we should note that police don't stop violence, they simply respond afterwards. And it isn't demanding that we get rid of police without having anything to take their place. When we say abolish the police, We're saying the entire system of policing and incarceration is designed to uphold violence against black, indigenous people of color, gender non-conforming people, and low-income people. It is a system of oppression and doesn't keep many of us safe. As such, this system needs to be dismantled piece by piece and replaced with alternatives that are community-driven, offer care and support, and protect those who are most at risk for violence and abuse. According to Eight to Abolition, 1,000 people are killed by police every year, and black people are murdered at three times the rates of white people. Up to 50% of people murdered by the police have disabilities. Up to 40% of police officers have perpetuated intimate partner violence, and sexual violence is the second most common form of police brutality, primarily targeting black women, especially those who are sex workers and drug users. The issue isn't just that police are killing over 1,000 people per year, many of whom have mental illness. It's that police are abusing their power both at home and while on the job through sexual violence, verbal abuse, and physical violence leading to death. And we've seen this unfold for decade after decade. That is why the police need to be abolished. 
Now, before you tune me out completely, let me just say that I know this is hard for some of you to hear. You have children, parents, spouses, and loved ones who are police officers. You can point to countless times that they've helped people on the job, and to your knowledge, they've never done anything like the things I'm describing. I get that. I'm not saying that your loved ones are bad people. I'm not even saying that anyone who gets into police work is doing it to hurt other people. There are thousands of officers who go to work daily with the singular goal of being nothing but helpful. What I am saying, though, is that the job they've chosen to do isn't designed to be helpful to large segments of our population. If you're a person of color or poor, the police system wasn't designed to protect you. And at some point, we have to be honest with ourselves about that truth. If you care about creating a world that is just, and you believe everyone deserves to be protected, then you can't look away from the evidence that tells us policing doesn't accomplish either of those goals effectively. Think about this. On March 3, 1991, Rodney King was stopped after a high-speed chase in Los Angeles, California for drunk driving. Once he was apprehended, he was severely beaten before being taken into custody. The officers who beat him were acquitted despite the entire incident being caught on camera, and L.A. subsequently erupted into violence as anger over the continued injustices boiled over. Even if Rodney King had been the first ever incident of police violence, that still happened over 30 years ago. On December 4th, 1969, Chicago police officers arrived at the Black Panther Party offices in Chicago, Illinois, to serve a warrant and opened fire on the building. During the shooting, the charismatic leader, 21-year-old Fred Hampton, was killed. Police later claimed that the Black Panthers opened fire first, but a subsequent investigation not only debunked that claim, but uncovered a coordinated political effort by the Chicago PD, FBI, and other political leaders to orchestrate the assassination of Fred Hampton. He was shot at point-blank range while lying in his bed. This took place over 20 years before the Rodney King riots. What point am I making by bringing these two incidences up? The point is that police have been targeting, harassing, and killing people of color for decades, and nothing has stopped that. Whether we look back at the assassination of Fred Hampton in 1969, or the beating of Rodney King in 1991, or if we go back even further, police have been doing this without recourse, time after time after time. And people are neither safe nor free. But why should we care about police abolition? As Anabaptist Christians, we actually have a very compelling reason to care. And that reason is Jesus. See, Jesus belonged to a religious minority that was ruled by a large empire. His people were oppressed by colonial power and government agents, in this case Roman soldiers, regularly harassed, injured, or even killed them. I think we ignore this backdrop of Jesus' life. In first century Palestine and Judea, Roman armies occupied the territory and enriched their empire off the backs of the people of Jesus' community. It's no coincidence that poverty and disease appear to be rampant in the biblical narrative. That's just what happens when a group of people are exploited by an empire. In his book, The Politics of Jesus, Obrey Hendricks notes the following. The biblical tradition, to which Jesus was heir, is marked at every step by political issues. Justice and injustice, domination and resistance, oppression and liberation. Indeed, the Exodus, the root event of biblical faith, was a liberation event that made the profound and lasting statement that the God of Israel is a champion of justice. That, in conflicts between oppressed and oppressor, God takes the side of the oppressed, never the side of the oppressor. 
He goes on to note that the New Testament clearly portrays Jesus, his family, and with few exceptions, everyone he encountered throughout his life as impoverished and oppressed, exploited by the religious establishment, brutalized by their Roman colonizers. That this was his setting in life is undeniable. To further situate Jesus in the historical narrative, let's just read from the text itself. I want to check out a passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now let's think about that for a second. We know the political and social context that Jesus is situated in. His people are oppressed by the Roman Empire. So it is no small thing for him to get up and read from this section in Isaiah and say that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captive, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed free. This is not a small thing. Jesus is rooted and surrounded by people that are oppressed, and he's here saying, God sent me to free you. Jesus saw himself as an agent of liberation. With that in mind, we can understand every act of his ministry as an attempt to undo or challenge the effects of the political system that is leading to the deaths of his people. Even his crucifixion can be understood as the ultimate form of solidarity and the ultimate indictment of the violence of the Roman system. How many contemporary crucifixions will we have to watch before we're willing to dismantle the system, even if it benefits us? Jesus didn't say he came to loose the bonds of oppression except when it was convenient for him, and neither should we. And the police are agents of oppression. Again, I don't say that lightly or with malice towards anyone. I say it because, as far as I can tell, it's the truth. I told you in episode one that I wouldn't sugarcoat things, and I meant that. I know those words are difficult to hear. I also know that as people of faith, our commitment to justice doesn't end once we stop being comfortable. Jesus often spoke in ways that made those around him uncomfortable, including his own disciples. And if we were to follow the model laid out in the gospel narratives, then our discomfort should be an invitation to lean in rather than turn away. God often brings us to the edge of our comfort so that we might imagine a new way. And frankly, the comfort you may have experienced with police is a privilege that countless others have never known. Policing began in some places as runaway slave patrols. That's right. In certain instances, what we know as the police force was birthed as a way to maintain the brutal system of chattel slavery. How can an occupation birthed to ensure that black people don't ever find freedom be anything but oppressive? And at this point, you may be wondering, Ben, Abolishing the police is going too far. Calling them agents of oppression is too much. Why don't we just institute the reforms that are suggested and go about our merry way? The truth is, reforms haven't worked. They've been tried time and time again, and the results are largely the same. You can train officers to recognize their implicit bias. You can even diversify the police force. But at the end of the day, black officers kill unarmed black people just like their white counterparts. 
Officers who understand bias still enforce laws designed to criminalize poverty and queerness. The reforms you're thinking of don't make a difference. Policing is a tool of the suppressive political and social order that regularly harms black and brown people, gender nonconforming people, and low-income people. If we take our faith seriously and we take following Jesus seriously, then we must also take this question seriously. What would it take to live in a society in which communities can be safe for everyone? And frankly, I think the answer is clear. We have to abolish the police. Let me remind you of what I said when we were defining our terms at the beginning of this episode. Police abolition simply means admitting that what we've been doing is harmful and committing to using our resources to imagine a new way. It doesn't mean that tomorrow the police will be gone and you'll suddenly be in danger of being mugged or assaulted on the street. It means that we begin the process of investing our resources into new and existing systems that actually keep people safe so that eventually what we know of as the police force will no longer exist. There are eight steps to police abolition that the organization Eight to Abolition calls for. I'll highlight a couple for you and then invite you to do a deep dive into the rest on your own. Step number one is to defund the police, and that means slashing police budgets and refusing to hire new officers. Then we must demilitarize communities. That means disarming law enforcement officers, including private security, removing police from hospitals, and repealing all laws that excuse police misconduct. Next, we have to repeal laws that criminalize survival. That means repealing ordinances that criminalize people involved in the sex trades, drug trades, and street economies. It also means ending all fines and fees associated with legal processes, including ticketing, cash bail, court costs, and parole and probation fees. So what would it take to ensure everyone was free? Well, we first have to abolish the police and prisons and replace them with systems that actually protect everyone, not just those who benefit from white privilege or wealth. Jesus did not come so we could have comfortable lives shielded from the gruesome realities of the world. He came to proclaim God's freedom. We have the knowledge. We have the tools. Now it's time for us to take action. What will it take? It will take you and me following God's call, following the example of Jesus as Anabaptist Christians, and using our resources and talents to abolish the police. Okay, so now that we've established that the police force is an oppressive agent of the system that harms rather than protects, and we know that as followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to stand up against oppressive systems in favor of those who are being oppressed, what do we do? Well, I think there are some practical steps that we can take that will help us understand the system better and know how to take action. Number one, I think it's important that we all educate ourselves on the origins of policing. One way to do that is to check out The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. He lays it out very well. There are also several podcasts on this subject that I can point you to in the show notes. You can also do some research on cash bail and the ways it disproportionately harms low-income people and people of color. You can learn about the laws in your community around vagrancy, loitering, solicitation, and prostitution. Those laws are going to have a harmful effect on homeless populations and sex workers. You can find out how much of your local budget is going towards policing in general. You can look into whether or not your local police agencies have and use military-grade equipment. You can find out how many use-of-force complaints are filed and what happens to those complaints after they're received. I've also placed additional resources in the show notes section of this episode because, quite frankly, there is just so much to learn and so many ways that we can be impactful as we seek to create a society in which everyone can be safe and free. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the What Would It Take podcast. Each week, we'll examine a different question as we imagine and dream about the society that we all desire. If you are intrigued about this issue of police abolition and want to learn more and do a deeper dive, there are plenty of resources in the show notes. I've also included links to the pages that I got the information for this episode. So you can double check my research, fact check me all you want. I welcome that. Um, I've included a, a police and prison abolition syllabus that is chock full of probably tens if not hundreds of resources for you to continue to uh, improve your understanding of what we mean when we say abolish the police and what we mean when we imagine what that world might look like. I just want to thank you again for checking out this episode. If you appreciate this work, feel free to share this within your network and continue to dream about the world that you desire. Continue to dream about the world that aligns with your faith values as well as your political values and continue to walk with me as we ask ourselves what it would take for everyone to be free.